This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And, and we're, those are our names. Those are our names. And we're taking it back to the beginning this week. Yeah, I wrote. So you read East of Eden by John Steinbeck. Every week, one of us reads a book we've never read before. We tell the other person about it. Everyone has a good time. Everyone has a few laughs. And sometimes uh, we learn about why a book is known by people. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. And, but, I mean, the real knowledge is the friends we made along the way. Every time. Every time, which is what we... It's a really consistent podcast, I think. We did John Steinbeck on the show back in uh, February of 2013 for our first episode, uh-huh. which was about Of Mice and Men. Now... This is way before we started doing any author research. It's way before we had any idea what the show was. And it was way, 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 way before we had a listenership. Yeah. So uh, best to pretend like we've never met him before. So hello, Mr. Steinbeck. Welcome, it Mr. Nice Steinbeck. <laughs> I recall liking the other book of yours that I read. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the genesis of the show. Uh, I say Genesis because this is a very biblical book. It's very uh-huh. topical. Mm. Yeah, that's what I hear. It's got the, I mean, it's got Eden right in the title. Yeah. Uh-huh. And apparently a bunch of reviewers at the time were like, this talks about the Bible a lot. This is a little much. This is a bit much. <laughs> yeah. But did they know who John Steinbeck was? Like, dude was interested <laughs> in that stuff. Just saying. Yes. You could be interested in something that doesn't interest me. Like, you can be really interested in something, and that doesn't mean that it makes your book good, is what I'm saying. I'm just saying that. I'm not trying to cast aspersions on East of Eden, a book which I know very little about and have never read, but that's what you're here for. That is what I'm here for. It's also worth noting that this book was a recommendation from one of our Patreon supporters. Find out more information on that at patreon.com slash overduepod. This is a recommendation from Audrey. Thank you, Audrey, who said, I'm a new listener and an even newer Patreon patron. So my bad if you said you've never you'd never again touch a John Steinbeck novel, but it'd be cool if you covered East of Eden for an episode. It's the book I always told people I read and was my favorite, but is in reality the book I only ever read 150 pages of before getting bored and doing something else. <laughs> Sorry in advance, Audrey. Thank you, Audrey. When was Audrey a new listener in the uh, over a year ago? Over a year ago. So hopefully, Audrey, you're still around. Yeah, uh, we got to your book. Let's talk about Mr. John Steinbeck. Let's unless talk you want to say something else. Well, I was just going to say, like, I honestly hadn't really considered the fact that we hadn't done him again. Uh, but this one was also kind of sitting on the list because it is a long one. And a lot of people were very excited to hear us talk about this book. And I'm just going to put it out there. I will not talk about all of it. It's not possible for this show mm-hmm. to do mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. 
And I liked the book, and so I don't feel like I need to like dig into every little bit to to like make well, my case. I do feel I feel like I uh, attract more of these arrows than you do for whatever reason. But I am looking forward to all the tweets about why you didn't talk about everyone's favorite part of the book. I I would actually be very interested to know what people's favorite parts of the book are. No one said yeah. they just said they mm-hmm. liked it. Okay, I mean, maybe they just said that they liked it because they didn't actually read it, like Audrey did. That's maybe very they're possible. All just big liars. Maybe they're all big lying liars. <laughs> Let's talk about Mr. Steinbeck. What do you got, John Steinbeck? Like? Born in 1902, you know he was a liar because fiction is lying, Andrew, because it's not real. It didn't happen. Everybody who writes fiction is a big liar. That's what I'm bringing that's, that's the energy i that's the that's heat the i'm bringing energy to this you're episode. bringing into our late 400s episodes <laughs> yeah our fiction. podcast about books and lying john steinbeck was born in 1902 and died in 1968 that's those are facts yeah uh he's best known for works like of uh, mice and men uh the grapes of wrath and this uh he was born and raised in the valleys of central california where a lot of his work is set this is one of the books based in that and went through a bunch of like Valley adjacent working titles before he settled on East of Eden, presumably because it is both a reference to like verdancy, verdancy, mm-hmm. like the verdant surroundings of the Valley and also the Bible. So it's John Steinbeck's two favorite things is the <laughs> agricultural valleys of central california and the bible now i did not i did not know this it is literally a quote from the cain and abel yeah. story mm-hmm. and that i think that is more important to it to eden being in the title than the valley being a garden of eden which is referenced once in the center of the book and i was like "Ooh, okay. title card and mm-hmm. then got a little further into the book i was like oh no they're gonna spend 30 pages dissecting the Cain and Abel story. That's the title card. Okay, Mm -hmm. sure. Uh, So he was... I'm not going to cover every aspect of his life, but here's some fun facts that I found. Uh, He was, like so many great artists, supported financially by his parents starting in the late 1920s. His first novel, Cup of Gold, was released in 1929. Yeah. Uh, The bulk of his most famous and notable work was released throughout the 1930s. Uh, This includes uh, The Red Pony in 1933, uh, Tortilla Flat in 35, Mice and Menace 37, Grapes of Wrath is 39. Um, Grapes of Wrath got him some pushback from uh, California landowners who were not like aligned with his New Deal political views or, you know, literary critiques of capitalism. (laughs) Yeah, he was doing his he was doing his like there are migrant workers here and they're being exploited and that's awful. And I'm going to write books about it because I love this place and I have feelings about these people and you can suck it. Uh, yeah, that's a direct quote from John Steinbeck. Uh-huh. Uh, he, but he, you know, he stayed active in in the forties. He was a war correspondent in World War Two. Uh, he worked with the Office of Strategic Services, which was a wartime organization that uh, preceded the CIA. Yeah. Um, he did a bunch of writing and screenwriting in this period. His most known novel from the forties, I think, is Cannery Row, which is in forty five. Um, and yeah, there there are. 
there's this guy, Ed Ricketts, who's a marine biologist who was like BFFs with John Steinbeck. Yeah. They hung out all the time. Absolute ecology bros, it sounds yeah. like. Bros go out on the boat, do marine biology, and they <laughs> love the environment, and John Steinbeck just wrote stuff. But um, a biographer for Ricketts noted that after he died in the late 40s, like Steinbeck's, like the, the frequency of his output decreased after that and you know maybe correlation doesn't necessarily equal causation in in this case but ricketts does show up in a lot of like they wrote they wrote at least one book together right they wrote a yeah they wrote a non a a book that combined nonfiction and fiction that steinbeck then Mm. later took all the fiction parts out of and published separately because the combined book did not do very well okay (laughs) but um but yeah, Ricketts shows up in a lot of characters in Steinbeck's work in the 30s and 40s, and, and he was a big inspiration. Um, so yeah, that's Ed Ricketts. That's what I know about him. Um, the last novel that – so he wrote East of Eden in in uh, 1950 – what was it? 55? Released in 52. The film Released was 52. 55. film was 55. The film had James Dean in it. Yep. So good job, East of Eden film. Um, <laughs> that was it was definitely his biggest thing they did in the fifties, and he considers East of Eden to be his his greatest work. Even I think though most, Grapes of Wrath is the Pulitzer winner, that everyone's like, oh, it's the Grapes of Wrath. Well, yeah, when John Steinbeck died, there was I think it was a New York Times obituary that's like, you know, John Steinbeck wrote a lot of stuff. It's too bad that his first great book was his last great book, but what a book Grapes <laughs> of Wrath was. Yeah. It really spends a whole page of newspaper ink on the Grapes of Wrath for this guy who died. Yeah. Uh, he is, Steinbeck's last novel was uh, Winter of Our Discontent in 1961. Not not considered by anybody, I don't think, to be his best work. No. Um, but he did receive the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1962. And the combination of the critical response to Winter of Our Discontent and how upset everybody was that he won that Nobel Prize <laughs> made him never write another novel during his life. Yeah, he wrote so some other books, but fun. did not write fiction ever again. Yeah. Uh, and all this the stuff around the Nobel Prize is is a lot. Um, so they the deal with the Nobel Prize is, is you don't they don't release any of the anything about who was up for it or the deliberations or the reasoning or anything until like 50 years after it happens. Yep. And so it turns out that Steinbeck was just some weird, like compromise choice that everybody could get behind because of some weird combination of like, well, we can't have too many like French people win it in a row. <laughs> like we can't, we can't we can't be we can't afford to be seen snubbing this guy too much this guy's work is robert graves is more of a poet than a novelist so you know we can't really give it to him (laughs) it's like stupid nonsense i think when they Um, asked uh uh steinbeck about it if he deserved it he was like frankly no (laughs) he said no yeah he didn't deserve he didn't think he did i just find that Um, like the new york times was mean about it yeah they were they were upset without without detracting in the least from mr steinbeck's accomplishments we think it interesting that the laurel was not awarded to a writer whose significance influence and sheer body of work had already made a more profound impression on the literature of our age uh then uh someone at the times went on to say 
Uh, his, quote, limited talent is, in his best books, watered down by 10th-rate philosophizing, which I guess we'll get we'll get into, into a little, because yeah. it seems it's kind of hard not to. It's kind of just wild. When that you that talk happened. about John Steinbeck, yeah. Yeah. I, um, what he was. So, yeah, that's most, that's most of his deal. He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by LBJ in 1964. Um, New York Review of Books says that, uh, like so many other writers of his time, he's disgusted with capitalism, but he's not really a revolutionary. Comes across more as a disaffected adolescent dishing out a kind of callow cynicism, which, hello, Holden Caulfield. That's nice to see you. Yeah, nice to meet you, Holden, again. I, I hate Holden Caulfield. No, I know you really he don't sucks. like Holden Caulfield. Uh, this book is interesting. I, there's like one character where you take a real dim view of humanity and that character exists. But ultimately, the book has this kind of like fervent belief in the positive mutability of man. Mm-hmm. Um so I don't I don't know that I would classify this book as especially cynical, though I know that similar to Grapes of Wrath getting uh banned and censored, this book was primarily, I think, because of its like sexual content. There's one character who spends a like runs a brothel and there's a lot of scenes that take place there. Mm-hmm. Um that's usually when where stuff winds up on that list because it's just like we can't let a kid know about sex. Um <laughs> And then the, said Jerry Seinfeld, <laughs> a very angry Jerry Seinfeld, um, who's on the school board for some reason. And the only other thing I saw, like this book, was written for his two sons, and is one of the two families in the book. The Hamiltons is just based on his family on his mom's mm-hmm. side, mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other family, the Trasks, is made up so that he can. To explore the Cain and Abel parable. Oh, good. Uh, so there's a lot um, like names are not changed. Like his mom, Olive, is a character in the book. Uh, he shows up. Baby John Steinbeck shows up on like a page. At I, one point. I read that John Steinbeck was in this John Steinbeck book. Yeah. And I don't know. I think we'll talk about it. I'll probably end up talking more about the Trasks overall just because the book the latter half of the book spends way more time with them. Um, And the closing of the book spends way more time with them. The James Dean film is all about the fourth part of this four part book. Uh, Like it does not include the earlier stuff. And I can understand why, because there's so much stuff. So (laughs) you, you would have to make a much bigger uh, epic scale movie than I think Kazan was probably making in the fifties. Um, yeah um so on that note yeah there 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 was another movie like a that universal was attached to that jennifer lawrence was going to star in okay that has been stuck in production hell apparently forever because there is no news of its release or casting or writing or anything about it that has happened since 2014. I love when that happens. This movie is going to be split into two movies specifically because of the bigness factor that you mentioned, but then it never got made and who knows who knows anything about it. Nobody does. Um I guess the last thing to talk about and you brought this up in your your notes to me mm-hmm. is the and we you get a hint of it in the very very mean 
reaction to him winning an award. Uh-huh. <laughs> but there was a split in the critical uh, response to East of Eden and the popular response. It's always been a very popular book. It uh, was an Oprah book club pick in 2003, which amplified it. It's it's wild to me that Oprah was like, you know who needs my help <laughs> is John Steinbeck. Funny story. So she had, she had quote unquote ended her book club in 2002 uh-huh. with a Toni Morrison book and then came back the next year and was like, y'all, I read Actually, this. there's this there's this white guy you need to know. About. I read this book and it's the best book ever. I'm restarting my book club and we're going to have classics in it now. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oprah, sure. Okay, Oprah. Um but yeah, the reviewers did not like it. They did not like its heavy-handed moralizing, which again, have you read John Steinbeck before? Mm-hmm. Um they did not appreciate particularly its reliance on biblical allusions. Yeah. They just didn't care they just didn't care for it. They thought it was long. They didn't think that some of the things like the intermittent first person perspective worked. Like there's just a lot like narratively and mechanically that did not do it for people in the 1950s. Yeah. Who were paid to write about books. Yeah. And we're probably like, when's he going to get that Grapes of Wrath magic back? Now, I, I honestly like maybe in another 400 episodes, we'll talk about Grapes of Wrath because I, 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 I can't I've, compare I've read the it. two. Have you read it? I have, No, I've not. You've not, oh no, then it's yours. It's yours to read. Oh, dang it! Okay, it's just long. It's yeah. long and it's it's deeply depressing. Sure, and that sounds yeah. That's like that's a my that's my mini episode within an episode about the grapes of wrath based on reading it Great. Like a decade ago. Well, we didn't read that book for this episode, so let's take a quick break, and then I'll I'll uh, tell you how to get east of Eden, Andrew. Oh, okay. I mean, I have maps on my phone, but okay. Andrew, if you're like me, there are lots of people in your life who have interesting stories to tell. Yeah. Just sit like and think, you. Just oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. There are probably other people in my life. Yeah. Um, and you probably also know some people who'd like love to hear those stories sometimes. If they could, if they had access to them. Mm-hmm. They just gotta sit and listen. Um, mm-hmm. and that means that you, Andrew, and our listeners should listen to me. When I say that artifact is the best way to capture the life story of someone you love, like a dear friend or relative, capture it so you can listen to it later. (laughs) Artifact does this by setting that person up with one of their professional interviewers who will lead them through a conversation about chapters of their life. They then edit the conversation into a series of -of one-of-a-kind podcasts that you can share with family and friends and keep for future generations to hear whomever the interviewee Whatever the subject, Artifact makes it easy and fun. And if you, Andrew, or, or our listeners are wondering what the finished product sounds like, uh, go check out the samples on the Artifact website. That's hey, artifact.com. Conversations with grandparents, newlyweds, or nieces and nephews. Uh, a bunch of people could share their favorite memories of a dear friend for like a heck of a gift to give them. And that's sort of what we're doing. We've commissioned a gift for our friends and their family to share and enjoy for years to come. It couldn't be easier to get started with Artifact. Step one, you go to heyartifact.com and choose the type of interview you'd like to do. They got a bunch of options. You can create your own. Step two, you book the interview on the website. It's super easy to do. And step three, the interview lasts about half an hour and you can do it over your phone. 
Bottom line is Artifact is your shortcut to creating something that you'll keep coming back to year after year. And if you use the code OVERDUE, you'll save $40 on your first purchase. Get started at HeyArtifact.com. All right, Andrew, as I think I said before the break, John Steinbeck said he was going to write this book for his sons. Mm -hmm. I found a quote where he said, I will tell, and there's a lot of ellipses in this quote, so I don't know what words are being left out, but I have it. Probably cusses. (laughs) Just imagine that all these ellipses are cusses. I'll say all Mm -hmm. the ellipses. I will tell dot, 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 the greatest story (laughs) of all. The story of good and evil, of strength and weakness, of love and hate, of beauty and ugliness. I shall try to demonstrate, dot, 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 how these doubles are inseparable. That is from a book called Journal of a Novel, which is like a companion nonfiction work that he wrote about working on this book, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, he's uh, setting it up that this is an important story. It's an important story that with brothels and like... and kill violence and stuff in it yeah he's writing for his four and his six year olds uh yeah it's a it's a it's a lot i it's cain and abel it's this is the land you come from it's how do you Abel famously had a good really good sibling relationship so yeah they were siblings with rivalry yes (laughs) um the it's about how you make your own identity. It's about America at the turn of the twentieth century. Um, yeah, I don't. Where, where do you want to start? What do you want? Me, what, do you, what do you want me to drop on you first? I mean, what is the so? That's what it's about in terms of like themes and like the the big stuff that it wants to talk about. What's the is there like a, a narrative story that it's also telling? Man, what if or, I what if I just sprung on you that there was no narrative whatsoever? You'd be so I, it mad would at not, me. It would not be the first book that we had read for the show though <laughs> that didn't really have a narrative to speak of. No, that's not true. There is a narrative. Um, the two main sets of characters we've got they live in the Salinas Valley in Northern California. Um, and the book opens with this pastoral description. And there's lots of pastoral descriptions of this beautiful place. And they are interesting and, and good, uh, but they do pad out the word count a little bit. Um, just to give you a sense of what it sounds like, this is the very beginning of the book. The Salinas Valley is in Northern California. It is a long, narrow swale between two ranges of mountains, and the Salinas River winds and twists up the center until it falls at last into Monterey Bay. I remember my childhood names for grasses and secret flowers. I remember where a toad may live and what time the birds awaken in the summer and what trees and seasons smelled like, how people looked and walked and smelled even. The memory of odors is very rich. And then he goes on to talk about the mountains and the way the sun moved over the mountains and how uh, it might be that you would see the birth and death of the day uh, about the two ranges of mountains. Uh, That's the kind of voice you're getting in... It doesn't happen very often in chapters with the characters that we'll be talking about. Mm-hmm. It, it happens in chapters where you get this first-person narrator who is a version of John Steinbeck. Um, 
And I don't know, you mentioned that the critical response didn't like the parts where he was like first person philosophizing. Mm-hmm. And maybe I just read enough books that came after this book where a lot of people do that anyway. Like I've read Dave Foster Wallace. I know mm-hmm. what it is when the author's like, I don't I don't need characters right now. I just wanna rap and they just like pull up the chair. <laughs> I just wanna, I just wanna <laughs> turn my chair around backwards and talk with you about some things. It sort of feels that way. And I was not like thrown by it. I've been steeped in books that do this uh, for for decades now. Um, so like that is kind of the thing that's happening in the story when it's not about the characters. It's about this place. It's about humanity. It's about the march of time, all that kind of stuff. But you asked what okay. the plot was. I did ask what the plot is. And then you got into big stuff again. Well, I became John Steinbecker. I, I, I wonder if that's how it's going to go. As you keep trying <laughs> to tell me about the plot and then we keep diverting into <laughs> um, other stuff. So he tells us in the first part of the book, he tells us about the two families that lived uh, in the Salinas Valley. So Hatfields and the McCoys. The Hamiltons and the Trasks. Close. Okay. You got it. Almost. Um, the Hamiltons. This is, again, based on Steinbeck's family, uh, based on his grandfather, Samuel. Uh, Samuel and his wife, Liza, come over from Ireland. Uh, Samuel is a charming, inventive, philosophizing man who never makes a lot of money because the farm he picked is not great. Mm-hmm. Uh, not great earth to plant anything in not a lot of water in that region mm-hmm. um and he uh he likes to invent stuff and come up with solutions mechanical solutions for things and then he doesn't really do a good job of of making money on them like patent people just take them make all the money sure. i think steinbeck refers to it as he got a patent disease at one point um he has nine kids he delivered them all four boys five girls i have one kid and that's a that's a lot of kids it's a lot nine's a lot it's a lot um he is more educated than his uh station might lead you to expect he likes to read a lot um he does not have any higher education. I don't know. I don't even remember what formal education he had. Um, and there, there is some rumination in the book on like the expectations of people in different classes and what they should and should not know and what they should mm-hmm. and should not do with their time. And he kind of defies some of those expectations. Um, his kids factor into the rest of the book. Some of them get chapters like about their little stories. Some of them don't. Um, the ones that get the most time are his son, Will, who is like not an especially in, like creative person, but he's kind of lucky and he has a good head for business. And so the rest of the book, he's just the one businessman in town that's super <laughs> successful that everybody okay. goes to with their problems. Man, um, to be the only guy, maybe I just need to move to a smaller town <laughs> and I can be the only one who knows anything about business. <laughs> there's a there's a line, I think, I think it's Will, where he talks about being a big fish in a small pond where he is the only one. Like he's involved when everybody starts getting Model T's like he's got his fingers in a lot of pies. Um, I was the, Henry and I were listening to the Beatles earlier yeah. today. 
And, you know, I still enjoy their music a lot. But, man, boy, talk about Big Fish in Small Pond. It was very easy to impress people with your rock and roll music when you could be like, hey, in this one, the guitar's backwards. Hey, in this one, this one, I decided to write about something other than romantic love between a man and a woman. People are going to talk about me for 60 years. (laughs) (laughs) It was just, it was was much easier. Our drummer wrote this one. Whoa. Whoa. (laughs) It's about a hammer. That one never, drummers writing music never did really catch on yeah dave grohl had to become a guitarist to like become a successful songwriter Mm -hmm. that's a bad joke anyway (laughs) anyway um his one of his other sons tom who has kind of a tragic arc over the course of the book is very similar to samuel uh steinbeck says he was born in fury and lived in lightning which is same one way to say that someone's kind of headstrong and emotional and sensitive and creative Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Sam's estimation, Tom could never decide throughout his life if he should be like a great man or not. He's got all the potential and he spends That's his life. Also same. I'm, I too wrestle with that. Like struggling with answering the call or not. Um, there's George, who's the old boy who's good. And there's Joe, who's the baby. Everybody's got to love him. That's um, you. The two main... <laughs> daughters that we spend time with are desi who runs a dress shop and then her dress shop goes south when like uh like factory made dresses come into fashion and it's like Mm -hmm. no longer unfashionable to wear something that like rolled off the factory line um Hmm. it kind of drives her out of business and then Olive, who is Steinbeck's mother, gets a few chapters in the middle of the book, mostly just to talk. He's like, my mom's rad. She went in a plane once and she hated the Germans during the war. And then we don't really talk about her ever again. Speaking of, I was going to ask, like, how many of these kids do I have to know anything about? Like, are they just the It's a Wonderful Life kids where they're there and they're kind of running around, but... We don't really check in with them ever, or do they all have rich inner lives and we need to keep track of them all and the differences between them? You, So the way that the book is structured, most of them get their little vignette in the sun and then we move on mm-hmm. um, when we talk about them at all. Uh, I'm front-loading this conversation with the Hamiltons because the book for me, and I think for a lot of people, is really about the Trasks. Um, Adam, his sons, and his wife, Kathy. Well, then why are we spending all this time on Hamilton? (laughs) Because, well, A, Samuel Hamilton uh, features prominently in Adam Trask's story. Um, The Hamilton kids are kind of used to show a wide range of experiences at this point in American life. Okay. Um, so he's kind of doing, I think what, this is my take, is that Steinbeck is taking his kind of grapes of wrath. He was a reporter in California on a lot of the migrant labor stuff, which is what led him to write Mice and Men and mm-hmm. Grapes of Wrath. And I think he just, he took that skill set uh, and sensibility and started applying it to his family. And sure. that's where these stories come from. But he really wanted to write about this Cain and Abel story. And so, like, <laughs> the book takes some... These these stories almost help 
to create a rhythm where he doesn't have to intricately plot as intricately the Trask storyline. He can kind of create little caesuras and like, we're not going to stay with them for right now. We're going to go hang out over here and someone else is going to be sad or have a life event or something. Um, it does make you wonder, like, maybe sometimes your book should be two books. Maybe it should be two books. I, I also was like, as soon as I saw that factoid about the film only being the fourth part, where by that point, Adam and his his two sons are like teenagers at that point. So they've skipped so much stuff in the book and you can really focus it in. And it almost it feels like the same size story that could fit in like a slightly bigger of Mice and Men at the end of this okay. book. But mm-hmm. there's just so much to the iceberg underneath the water that he clearly needed to get down on paper. Sure. Um, I'm going to close this discussion of the broader Hamilton family with this paragraph. Uh, all in all, it was a good, firm-grounded family, permanent and successfully planted in the Salinas Valley, not poorer than many and not richer than many either. It was a well-balanced family with its conservatives and its radicals, its dreamers and its realists. Samuel was well-pleased with the fruit of his loins. Huh. A good balanced family. My mom's family was pretty good, John Steinbeck says. (laughs) They were okay people. Mm -hmm. Um, The Trasks are the book for me. They are multiple iterations of the Cain and Abel story from uh, La Bible. And the holy book, you might call it. And it starts with Adam and Charles uh, in the late 19th century. Or not, actually, it starts in the 1860s because their dad... Craig, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Charles. (laughs) God. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. I should have been ready for that one. Um, Adam's dad, Cyrus... uh, Well, I guess Charles is born by this point when when their dad goes to war. Um, No, no, no. That's... No. I'm, I can't make that mistake because it's important. Okay. Um, so don't make it. I won't. God. Um, <laughs> All right. <laughs> Adam's dad, Cyrus, uh, they're living in Connecticut. He goes to serve in the Union Army. Uh, literally, like, three days into his first, like, time on the front, uh, he gets shot in the leg and loses half of his leg and comes home. Um, he did managed to have sex with a woman in the south and contract syphilis and give it to his wife who then uh thought it was a punishment from god and she took her own life so now adam doesn't have a mom and he has an angry veteran dad fine uh cyrus remarries uh to a woman named alice uh has a second son charles and now we have the boys adam and charles and cyrus has taken on this character of like He's bragging about all the stuff he did in the war, which he very clearly didn't do because he wasn't mm-hmm. in it for very long. Mm-hmm. And he's become an expert in the war, and he's got all these interesting insights. And he becomes an officer in the GAR, which is like I think the Grand Army of the Republic. It was like the Veterans Association for the Union Soldiers. Okay. Um, and Cyrus is very harsh with his sons, but he's particularly harsh with Adam, which Adam doesn't understand because he's a nice, sensitive boy. And his brother Charles is the kind of like bruiser of the two who's never sorry for anything and kind of really wants 
attention and love and doesn't understand why people like his brother Adam a little bit more. Um, and Cyrus is training Adam to go off and be in the army and he's not going to send Charles because Charles is never afraid of anything. So he'd never learn anything about courage. Okay. Uh, they have a couple quarrels in a Cain and Abel style. One of them. When you say Cain and Abel style, does somebody die because he, because his brother got jealous that God liked his sacrifices more? Well, uh, because if it's not, if it's not that, then it's not Cain and Abel style. It's in this house. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The big one is after. Cyrus has a private conversation with Adam about how he's like, I'm going to send you into the army. And Charles is like, what is dad talking to you about? You have this secret relationship with dad that you never let me in on. And his birthday, I gave him a cool knife, a cool German knife. And he, didn't, he never uses it. And you gave him a stupid dog and he trained it and it sleeps in his bed and everything. Mm-hmm. And they get in a big fight. And this is not the first time they fought. But this is the first time that Charles almost kills Adam. He um, does like beat him. He beats his brains out, like kicks him on the ground, almost hits him in the head with an axe, but thinks better of it. Uh, so it's Cain and Abel style. It is not. Okay. You know. Um, and Adam recovers and then gets sent off to be in the army. Okay. And he becomes kind of a wand or what what Steinbeck calls one of the many wandering men of the 90s of the 1890s, I suppose. <laughs> Cuz he didn't like being in the army. He became a pacifist while he was in the army. Uh he spends some time in a road gang for being a vagrant. Uh their dad dies, leaves them a bunch of money. Charles is living on the farm by himself. His mom has also died. And finally convinces Adam to come home after a few years. And so now they have this inheritance money from their dad, who was a dirty liar, probably. Mm -hmm. And we don't know where this money came from. He may have embezzled it. It's never answered. Charles is suspicious. Adam doesn't really care. 90s were a wild time. They really were. The the go-go 90s. Um, oh, also worth noting, Andrew, Charles, uh, while he was farming the farm, like you do, moving rocks around. That's what you do on a farm, yeah. He, I played Harvest Moon. I know how it is. He was trying to take rocks out of his farm. He hit himself in the head with an iron bar, and now he has this scar on his head. That's like a big mark. Mm-hmm. Like the mark of Cain. Yeah. That is on him forever. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, he tried to sense. kill his brother. Yes. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're like... Subtle. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, they're kind of arguing about what they're going to do with this money. And some of this is broken up with stories about the Hamiltons. Um, all that stuff. And then we get introduced to this woman, Kathy. And uh, Steinbeck, the subtlest writer on Earth, uh, mm-hmm. starts his chapter about Kathy with the following. I believe there are monsters born in the world to human parents. Okay. Uh-huh. Also subtle. Cool. Uh-huh. Now, all right. 
<laughs> it is my belief that Kathy Ames was born with the tendencies or lack of them which drove and forced her all of her life. Some balance wheel was misweighted, some gear out of ratio. She was not like other people, never was from birth. And she's just kind of a terrible person. Kathy was the one person who I did want to get to because it does seem like if you're going to pick somebody who this book, I don't know, like if, if you're just going to pick somebody who sticks out the most, it's got to be Kathy. Yeah, because like, in the in the critical reviews of the book, they were like, this Kathy person is a lot like this is this is too much. In fact, yeah, she's too, she is very much. Um and like just the quick backstory for her when she's a little kid uh, and this is like 10 or 11 uh, Steinbeck is already like she is aware that humans are kind of shameful and secretive about sexuality and Mm -hmm. that is a means to power over other people and she learns about this and just decides to use it forever as the way to get what she wants in life. Um, there's an incident where some boys get in trouble for fooling around with her, but maybe it maybe it was at her doing, her father suspects. A teacher in her school kills himself for, like, fantasizing about her, and she was probably... The implication is that she was manipulating him. Um, mm-hmm. She tries to run away, and her dad brings her home and is like, no, you can't. And he punishes her for it. And so she burns her parents' house down with them inside uh, and then runs away. And this is escalating pretty dramatically. Yeah. And then she uh, hooks up with a guy. Um, she's still like a teenager at this point. She hooks up with a guy who has like a traveling pimp operation in multiple cities that his wife doesn't <laughs> know about. Uh, but he falls in love with her instead. And so she doesn't like that because now he's trying to have power over her. Uh, she attacks him and then he beats her almost to death before running away. And that happens in the great state of Connecticut. So in her in- nearly incapacitated state, she crawls to the doorstep of who? The Trask boys. Huh. Uh, and then what happens? While she's convalescing, Adam decides that he loves her. And oh, no. she is like, I need someone to protect me, so I'm going to trick this guy into marrying me. But also, his brother can tell that I'm evil, so I respect him. And I'm going to have sex with him before we leave. Cool. Rad. So, and that is, I think, the last... Like, Adam... She and Adam leave for California. And I don't think we ever see Charles again. He dies later in the book. Mm -hmm. And we... Yeah, that's it. We don't. He just so his whole thing is just that he knew that she was evil. Yeah, and she thought that was hot, and they boned about it. Okay, he was mad at his brother for like taking her in and like disrupting their whole life about it. So like they had fought, and then she drugged Adam, and then went and had sex with Charles. And you can believe that Charles was into it because he was mad at his brother. Okay, I guess. Okay, I mean, right? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but okay. <laughs> the thing about Kathy that the book seems to be interested in is that she is all nature, no nurture. She is, she was born into this world without the capacity to understand that humans can be good. So she 
acts cruelly and evilly and self-interestedly um, because she can't imagine that anyone else is doing anything other than that themselves. Yeah. And the crux of the book, uh, which becomes clearer a little bit later after her, after her twins, surprise, they're twins, um, Caleb and Aaron, if you're noticing a pattern, uh, no, it's it's really it's way too subtle for me. Craig. Okay. I don't understand. Okay, okay, okay. Um, they're born, and it. Okay, real quick, let me set this up. They're born. Um, they're living in the Salinas Valley. Adam has befriended Samuel Hamilton, who lives on a nearby ranch. Samuel's going to help him find some water in the ground. Adam has also hired this Chinese-American man, Lee, who is a really cool character, which I will talk about a little bit more later on. And the three of them, after Kathy has the kids, during childbirth, bites Sam's hand like an animal. Um, And then a week after the twins are born, shoots Adam because he doesn't want her to leave and she just wants to leave. Um... Then a year later, Samuel and Lee are like, listen, Adam, you've been moping around your stupid house for a year and your boys don't even have names. Mm-hmm. Like you are really failing them. This is bad. This is cursed behavior. We need to fix this. They bring over a Bible and they start hunting for names in the Bible. And they just start making really heavy handed allusions to stuff that happens in the book they get they start talking about different names and not wanting to project too much onto the boys they don't want to ascribe qualities to them um it is also i got bad news for you about every name in the bible my dudes like what are you talking about (laughs) that's fair that's fair Uh uh-huh um but because i think the the whole cain and abel story comes up because samuel is like Hey, what about your name, Adam? You want to talk, like you want to talk about yeah, that? Yeah, no bag, no baggage associated with that one, and no baggage associated with his sons. Uh, yeah, no, nothing. And they all get into like a really in-depth conversation about that parable, about like why was God offended that Cain was like, "Hey, I grew this stuff in the ground." but Abel like killed a pig or a sheep or something for, and like God was into that. That does seem kind of mean of God to like, I did, you know, people could prefer meat to fruit, but you don't need to be a jerk about it. Yes. They they get into like, because it might've been, you know, like a nomadic shepherd society as that story was written down. So that's the, what's society? No, you mean in society, not, in the earth with four people. No, no. Okay. <laughs> no. Not the government of Cain and Abel. Uh-huh. Um, and there, there's this big, like, what does this story mean? Um, and at the end of it, when after Cain has killed Abel, God says something to the effect of, like, you shall triumph over sin. Um, and he uses this word in Hebrew because Lee, 10 years later in this story, has done a whole bunch of research on the original Hebrew. He's taken it to these 
uh, older Chinese men in town that are like scholars and interested in this kind of thing. And he digs into this word, Timshul, which is a mistransliteration on Steinbeck's part, apparently. Okay. Mm-hmm. Good um, job. But it it doesn't mean what certain versions have said it means, which are like God says you will triumph over evil or uh, God is commanding Cain to triumph over evil. The translation that the characters in the book come to is that Timshul means thou mayest triumph over evil. And Lee in particular puts forward this like thesis of like what is the amazing thing about humanity is that you can choose not to be wicked. You can choose to do a good thing. You can choose to look a failing or a sin in the eye and then learn from it and grow, et cetera, et cetera. Um, okay. And that is like what Caleb, the one of the two sons, winds up struggling with over the back half of the book because he is a little wicked boy, plays pranks on his brother Aaron because uh, everybody loves Aaron more. Aaron's more beautiful than he is and Aaron's sweeter and just assumes the best about people. And but are we talking like a sort of Bart Simpson-y kind of wickedness or are we talking like gonna kill my brother for some reason wicked um no it's it's a at times it's a little more wicked than bart it's not just pranks it's pranks usually done in response to a to a slight or a hurt but he's Mm -hmm. not the kid from the omen like he's not just torturing animals or anything like that okay but uh a girl like a, a couple from town their car breaks down on the ranch Uh, And they meet this young girl who's about their age, Abra. And uh, he can can tell that Aaron's into her. And so, like, he makes up stuff and says it to her to, like, freak her out. And kind of deliberately teases her and, you know, tries to make her have a terrible time. um, To just because he's jealous. Like, the, the big thing is that is motivated from a jealousy of, like... His father loves Aaron more. Other people love Aaron more. All that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, And while this story is progressing, which goes through like the ebb and flow of Sam's family, um, the fact that Kathy has wound up running this brothel in in the town of Salinas in the city, um, which is a little further off, but it it is the big nearby city. And she has ingratiated herself to the madam of that brothel uh, such that that woman leaves her all of her earthly possessions in a will. And then within a year, Kathy has poisoned that woman to death. So that I mean, she, that's for Kathy. That's pretty patient, I think. That is actually, a whole year to do it. That is actually Dang. a thing that Steinbeck says about her is that a lot of her schemes over the course of the book take months to like come to fruition and that for her it is never she never acts out of impatience or anything like that she knows even though we don't always have access to it she sets goals for herself and then which like, I'm listen yeah <laughs> we all should have goals she's a really compelling character aside from the caricature of evil that she is because yeah, she right. does like steer the brothel away from kind of be, excuse me, 
being rough and tumble but still being somewhat respectable into like a den of sadism um, where she also starts blackmailing people Mm -hmm. or at least has plans and means to definitely worse in terms of her morality that everything is always this premeditated yeah Mm -hmm. and and i think the the closest thing she has to a big overarching goal is that she will eventually use all of these resources to sell the brothel move back east build herself up as a character there get revenge on that guy who almost killed her and then who knows what she's gonna do um the plot of the book that is probably the most of the movie that people may have seen with Mr. James Dean is so we're getting to part four. We're getting yeah, we're getting the into the back half of part three and, home and stretch. into part four home stretch is do when and if the boys will learn that their mother is alive and that she is in the town uh, running a brothel and has been, and being evil and being evil yes that she has not been dead this whole time but that she actually left them entirely to go into this uh like den of sadism lifestyle uh because Steinbeck is he interesting there are two other brothels in town and he takes some time to characterize them as like he doesn't impugn them. He's like, these were going to happen. They fulfill mm-hmm. a social need. And they have they they fit different clientele who are in different moods. Mm-hmm. And from time to time, clergy and or whatever community organization will be like, we should probably like kind of tamp this down a little bit, but it's always there. Mm-hmm. But hers has gone a step too far. And is yeah, So he wants he wants to have a virtuous brothel in his book. To compare to the evil broth. He does. He does, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Adam has moved his family from the ranch into the city because he wants them to go to school uh, and get a better education. Aaron is going to go to college, maybe become a priest. Uh, and Caleb uh, is <laughs> Adam, who is sort of rich, didn't have to work for any of it. Loses a bunch of money in a refrigeration scheme where he wants to send a bunch of lettuce to the East Coast in a refrigerated train car. So he's invented how things work, but he's done it too early. A little too early, yeah. And uh, all the lettuce is bad by the time it gets there because there's a bunch of delays. There's not enough infrastructure Mm -hmm. for it to work. And... He loses a bunch of his money. The boys are kind of embarrassed in town. Everybody's calling them lettuce heads and making fun of them. And Caleb gets this plan that he is going to earn a bunch of money and give his father, like, give his father just cash Mm -hmm. to, like, make up for this mistake. Mm -hmm. And the way he makes the money is he gets in league with Will Hamilton, Samuel's son, to profiteer off World War I. Okay. By making a bunch of farms. Trying to send cabbages to our boys overseas. It's everybody in Europe's buying beans. So a year out, they make all the farmers plant a bunch of beans, make two cents on the beans from the farmers, and then make another seven cents on all the can all the bean cans selling them to Europe. He makes mm-hmm. fifteen grand on this bean mm-hmm. wharf profiteering. 
Mm-hmm. Adam hates the war. He's on the draft board. He hates sending boys into World War One because they're just going to die over there in the trenches. And he's ruining the day. He's going to send his sons there. And uh, he gets this money from Caleb. And he's like, this sucks. This is morally repugnant. Why did you give me this gift? You should never mm-hmm. have done this. It's awful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Aaron has decided that he doesn't want to go to college anymore. He does just want to be with his girlfriend, even though he doesn't really love her. He just loves the idea of her. Caleb, by this point, has an oldie buddy goodie. Yeah. Caleb, by this point, has found out about his mother, has visited her at least once, has not shared the, uh, the, the knowledge with his brother, but in this fit of passion and anger at giving such a terrible gift... And his brother being his dad's favorite, he tells Aaron about it, and Aaron runs to the like army and signs up and goes overseas right away, mm-hmm. which is effectively a death sentence. Yeah, and it ends. The book ends. You with, would, like best case, you're yeah. gonna come home with a bunch of trauma. Yeah, and write a bunch of long preachy books about yeah. it. Yeah, and the worst case is you're gonna die and be dead. And the book ends uh, on the question of whether or not Caleb will get his father's forgiveness. Uh, and it ends on that idea of Tim Shell. And what it's not about a forgiveness. It is about maybe Caleb can overcome what he did to his family. Sure. Um, all that to say, we went through the story as best we could. Mm-hmm. I... F- I dug it. I don't know what these critics are complaining about. It's like, it is heavy handed, but it's also like, there's enough stuff going on. There's enough interesting characters. Are they all super deep? No. He's got to like, pay homage to all his cool aunts and uncles. And See, I think this, this is the difference between you reading East of Eden and me reading East of Eden. Is like, I tend to find that kind of thing unmooring mm. in the context of a fictional work. Where, sure. it does, where it can't just like pick a thing to be about and it has to do all this jumping and scrumping. Well, but it's like he is <laughs> <laughs> jumping and scrumping. Yeah. You know. Sure. The I did find myself like the the stories about desi and tom hamilton like they're not going to stick with me very long the trask stuff is what's going to stick with me i think it's probably what sticks with people who like this book Mm -hmm. the kathy stuff stands out because she is so diabolical but she's also like it just sounds like the kind of character who authors don't give themselves permission to (laughs) right very often because it's too over the top it is yeah and and she i think the if there's a reading of this book where you're like wow there's one big female character and she's the joker (laughs) and like (laughs) what are we doing she's cruella yeah um and so like you couldn't make her even a little bit redeemable and that is frustrating that it that is if if I think what he wanted is like I needed a font of evil that mm-hmm. Caleb can compare. Like Comic Sans. Yes, um, very well done. <laughs> that Caleb can compare himself to because there's a lot of talk in this book of like people saying they have their parents in them. Can they mm-hmm. transcend that? Um, 
I think the it, whole, I mean, the whole book seems to be about nature versus nurture yeah. and mostly it's nature. Yeah. Yes. And I think there are a lot of, I think people, the thing that is not just nature is the way that the, every pair of brothers or people within families like define themselves by the other people in their family, which isn't exactly nature, right? Because it's not like this prescribed quality within you, but it's mm-hmm. this like, well, that's how you were going to turn out because you were around these people as you were growing up. Like, sure, Caleb is the way he is because Aaron is his brother. Um, Will Hamilton is the way he is because his family, no one else in his family wanted to be a businessman and no one knows how to do <laughs> business. No one else in things. town is a businessman and he's the only businessman. And he like fills that vacuum. The the character that gets completely excised from the film, because um, it's not, he's, even though he probably should be in parts of it, this character Lee, he's a Chinese American man. Um, it's a fascinating character that really stands out. Uh, his family came over during the building of the railroads. His parents came over, but then his parents died. And he is like, he is neither, he's too Chinese to be American. He's too American to be fully Chinese in, in like the Chinatown community and and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, He, when you first meet him, he is speaking pigeon English. He's speaking, you know, something akin to like woo on Deadwood. And Mm -hmm. then, as soon as he spends five minutes with Samuel Hamilton, he's like, yeah, I do that because if I actually speak the English that I know, people don't believe it and they will actually stop listening to me. Sure. Um, it's just this, uh, it was a character that I didn't know was in this book and is really about that sense of like, what happens when you don't come from anywhere? Cause he's like straddling so many different walks of life and what kind sure. of person can you be? Um, mm-hmm. And he has a lot of dreams deferred and becomes like both a mother figure to the boys and a father figure to Abra and almost like a life partner to Adam. Um, that was that was a surprise. And he doesn't map cleanly to any of the like biblical stuff going on in the book, which is kind of neat. Um, okay. But yeah, the I don't know. I was kind of the book ended and I was like. Wow, did I really just like a 600-page Cain and Abel allegory that much? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was honestly surprising. You and the entire American literary public. I guess so. Did I really like this that much? I think the stuff that you might like in it is maybe old hat at this point for us, but it's a lot of the... Uh, what is the 20th century going to be kind of stuff. Because, it, you know, it's written a few years after World War II, mm-hmm. but all the characters are dealing with the run-up, to the, the interval between the Civil War and World War I. Mm-hmm. So I think that there maybe that is some of what spoke to people also in addition to the Cain and Abel stuff. I, yeah, it's all like... I don't know what it felt like to be living in like the the late 40s and early 50s in America either. But I know that as far as our education was concerned, like history started with the end of World War II in <laughs> yeah. a lot of ways. Like history yeah. started with American global hege- hegemony and we didn't spend a lot of time in school, I don't think 
or at least it's not not as much like reflecting on what ran up to like you get some stuff about the depression and and whatever but it's like but the, but world war ii is is like very um narrowly or like simply painted as like an answer it's a good war well yeah you know and, and the war machine brought us out of the depression mm-hmm. so we don't have to talk about why we're in the depression <laughs> yeah no it's and it's good that the war did that yeah, yeah. The, you you asked about there being a lot of like of the critiques of capitalism in this book, and I think, you know, there's the war profiteering stuff that happens. Um, there is some stuff around what the, you know, proliferation of cars does and roads and and stuff like that. Yeah, Steinbeck, Grapes of Wrath has a lot of car stuff in it yeah. too. Um, I think the biggest. It's not quite capitalism, but the fact that the main characters who have money have it in this like chain of cursed inheritance is that that is meaningful. And you can like link that to a critique of, of forms of capitalism or not. It, it is more about like legacy and what is passed down and what you're going to do with that when you get it um, sure. and who you decide to leave it to. That happens a couple of times throughout the book. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I had a good time in this sprawling valley of well, I think you did morals and brothers. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think if it had like another set of brothers that would have been too much. Too many brothers. Too many brothers. He had the exact right amount of brothers. That's good that book. he did, that he got he nailed it, you know. Yeah, if he'd, if he'd added another generation of brothers, I would have said, Steinbeck, that's too much. But if he hadn't gone that far, it would have been like, you know what, I could I could, I could, could go for another set of brothers. Yeah. Like, I could eat, but for <laughs> Cain and Abel allegory, I guess. Yeah, let's go to the diner. I'll get some fries. Yeah, like, I could eat. <laughs> I could I eat. Could do another, I could do another one of these. <laughs> yeah. And his writing's pretty good. I don't know. He, there's a whole, there's a line I highlighted about uh, a goose walking over your grave that I'm gonna be thinking about for a while. <laughs> okay. And somebody somebody says I I don't want a goose walking over my grave. I don't want a goose anywhere near me. It's the thing. Ever. It's the thing where you get like a a weird chill and, and someone's like, "Ooh, did a goose just walk over your grave?" And I had never heard. I've heard that someone walk over your grave. I've never heard it. As a goose, articulated as like a goose, and yeah. this is what Sam Sam Hamilton is like. He's kind of freaked out after he meets Kathy, and he's like, "I think I need to build a fence around my grave, <laughs> so the goose can't walk over it." Yeah, I mean, and that's why cemeteries have fences now. Good fences, Keep the geese out, make bad goose cemeteries. Anyway, mm-hmm. that's East of Eden. We made it here. We made it all the way. Yeah, now we got to go back for next week to regular Eden. I think we can do it. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, tell us about your favorite part of this book that I did not get to talk about. Um, send it to overduepod at gmail.com. That's our email address. Hit us up on social media at overduepod, facebook.com, twitter.com. Thanks to a bunch of folks reaching out the past week. Becca, Kelly, Jenny, Bex, Robert, Bronwyn, Julia, Stacy, Nikki. Lots of other folks. Thanks to Nick Larangis, who composed our theme song. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where do they go? 
they go over to podcast.com. It's our internet website. Up there, I have links to Apple Podcasts, to Google, uh, to our RSS feed. Um, we are on Spotify. We're on Stitcher. We're anywhere you find fine podcasts. As I think I remembered to mention last week, we are going to be doing some our, our podcast network is going to be doing some behind the scenes, like moving around of our feed. It's just going to be like the site that we upload episodes into is changing. Yeah. Um, and long run should not impact anything for any of you at home. Short run, you might find your podcatcher of choice redownloading a bunch of old episodes because it thinks that they're new. Hopefully that, that that does not happen, but it always seems to hit some people. So if you notice that, that's what's going on. If your feed is not updating, starting with next week's episode, then let us know. That also should not be happening. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking um, of next week's episode, in the yeah, month of uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be reading "To Like the Lightning" by Ada Palmer. And after that, I'm gonna hit us up with "Mrs. Dalloway" by Virginia Woolf. Mm-hmm. And then I'm gonna read "The Boxcar Children" by mm-hmm. Gertrude Chandler w- Warner. And we're going to close out September with what, Andrew? Uh, collab, a collabo, another one of our collabos with Natasha from Unspoiled. We're going to be reading Aragon by Christopher pa- Paulini. Yeah. Which I believe when it was published, Paulini was the, held the Guinness World Record for the youngest author to have a best-selling novel. <laughs> Maybe best-selling fantasy novel. I don't know how, how many hairs they split on that one. We'll talk about it. Yeah, it's going to be good. Uh, And then, yeah, watch out for our uh, August bonus episode about the storybook version of the 1996 film Space Jam. Yep. It'll be up on the feed later this week. We recorded a couple of nights ago. It was very silly. It was like the Sonic the Hedgehog one, if you need one to compare it to. It was was a silly time. And we'll be posting lots of very... I don't know, some images from the book that really made me question some things, and I think they'll make you question some stuff, too. Yeah, like, how do I get out of here? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Until we talk to you next week, try to be happy. Was a headgum podcast.